The scripture reading for today is from the book of Mark, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. In the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, God's Son, happened just as it was written about in the prophecy of Isaiah. Look, I'm sending my messenger before you. He will prepare your way, a voice shouting in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make his paths straight. John the Baptist was in the wilderness calling for people to be baptized to show that they were changing their hearts and lives and wanted God to forgive their sins. Everyone in Judea and all the people of Jerusalem went out to the Jordan River and were being baptized by John as they confessed their sins. John wore clothes made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and honey. He announced, one stronger than I is coming after me. I'm not even worthy to bend over and loosen the straps of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. About that time, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and John baptized him in the Jordan River. While he was coming up out of the water, Jesus saw heaven splitting open and the spirit like a dove coming down on him. And there was a voice from heaven. You are my son, whom I dearly love. In you, I find happiness. We're in the middle of a three-part conversation about Christian faith and what makes it credible to believe in 2020. Now, we began this conversation last week with a dialogue between Scott and me about belief in God. But for many people, believing that God exists is the easy part. After all, allowing for the hypothetical possibility of some kind of divine other out there doesn't require you to believe anything in particular about that other. It's a different thing to believe, as Christians do, that that divine other has been uniquely revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, surprisingly few people are aware that it wasn't just early Christians who wrote about Jesus. Um, Tacitus was a Roman senator born in 56 AD, who's remembered even today for his historical accounts. One of the events that Tacitus discusses is the great fire in Rome. This fire took place in July 64 AD, and it was rumored that the mentally unstable emperor Nero had started the fire himself. Tacitus writes in one of his histories, to stamp out the rumor that he had started the fire, Uh, Nero substituted as culprits and punished with the utmost refinements of cruelty a class of men loathed for their vices whom the crowd called Christians. Christus, the founder of the name, had undergone the death penalty in the reign of Tiberius by sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate, and the pernicious superstition was checked for a moment only to break out once more not merely in Judea, the home of the disease, but in the capital, Rome, itself. Now, if you're hearing this wondering what these vices referred to are, uh, among other things, Christians were called atheists for not worshiping the Roman gods and were considered to be unsociable for not embracing all aspects of Roman cultural life and entertainment. It's very clear from the tone here that Tacitus has no affinity for Christians. But he also addresses Jesus' execution under Pontius Pilate as known fact. He confirms that within less than three decades after Jesus' death, there are what he describes as, quote, 
vast multitudes of Christ people living in Rome, half a world away from Galilee where Jesus once ministered. Pliny was the governor of Bithynia and Pontus in modern Turkey. Around 110 AD, Pliny writes to the emperor complaining about the problem of Christians. Pliny writes in his letter to the emperor, The method I have observed toward those who have been denounced to me as Christians is this. I interrogated them whether they were Christians. If they confessed it, I repeated the question a second and a third time adding the threat of capital punishment. If they still persevered, I ordered them to be led off to execution. For whatever the nature of their belief might be, I could at least feel no doubt that stubbornness and inflexible obstinacy deserved punishment. (laughs) I love that final line. Uh, Pliny is mystified by these people. Literally, all they have to do to save their lives is just deny knowing this Christ guy and walk away. What kind of crazy people refuse to do such a simple thing, knowing they're going to die for it? Pliny concludes, the world's probably better off without these people. Later in the same letter, Pliny expresses his hope that executing Christians, is going to restore the market for animals that were sold for pagan sacrifices. According to Pliny, Christ followers are multiplying so fast that a merchant can barely sell a sacrificial sheep anymore. In describing the beliefs of these strange Christians, he writes to the emperor, Uh, They affirmed the whole of their guilt or error was that they were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light and of singing in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God and of binding themselves by a solemn oath not to wicked deeds but never to commit any fraud, theft, or adultery, never to falsify their word, nor to deny a pledge when they were called to deliver it up. This is Pliny's description of early Christian belief and practice. So what does this mean? Why is it important? Well, first, both Pliny and Tacitus confirm that less than a century, in less than a century, an obscure religious movement from the outer fringes of the empire has grown so much that it's disrupting the economic system and freaking out the emperor. It's worth noting that the world has never seen anything like this, either before or since. A religion that spreads like wildfire, not through war or forced conversion, but through simple word of mouth by ordinary people. And people weren't just converting because it was somehow cool or popular. They were willing to die for this Christ in shocking numbers. No wonder observers then and now had no idea how to account for it. The second important thing to observe is that Pliny says the worship of Christ as God was a core Christian doctrine. People sometimes suggest that Jesus was a good religious teacher that later generations eventually decided to treat as divine. But according to Pliny, Jesus' divinity was central to Christian faith from the start. The story of Christ spread across the world in just a few decades while his followers were alive, 
And at that point, the cat was out of the bag. There was no centralized authority. There was no Pope, no Christian Bible, no way to suddenly make a revision to the story or add something onto it later. At the end of the first century, Christian faith was everywhere what it had been from the very first sermon. It was a faith in Jesus Christ who was worshipped as God. There was never any other Christianity. Uh, To add just one more witness to the mix, Josephus was a famous first century Jewish historian. And Josephus writes about James, the brother of Jesus, who was called the Christ. He, He says that James was killed by Ananus, the Jewish high priest in Jerusalem. Now, this story is consistent with what we learn in Acts, that Jesus' brother James eventually became the head of the Christian church in Jerusalem. As preacher Andy Stanley says, what would you have to do to convince your brother that you're the son of God? Uh, Paul mentions in one of his letters to the Corinthians that other brothers of Jesus are also traveling with their wives and spreading his story. This is Jesus' biological family. The people who are in the best position to know his history, where he's from, what he's like. And they didn't just believe in him, but a non-Christian historian who was alive at the time verifies they were willing to die for that belief. But while the historical data is compelling, it's not the only reason to take Jesus seriously. In my opinion, the most convincing reason for faith is the compelling nature of Jesus himself. I'm currently watching the new TV series, The Chosen, based on Jesus' life. Now, every time Jesus' story is told, it floors me again in a different way. He touched diseased people who were terribly disfigured and potentially very contagious. He can be surrounded by crowds of people and notice one beggar lying on the side of the road. He embraced women as friends at a time when talking to a woman was considered demeaning. He showed compassion to prostitutes and also to occupying enemy soldiers. He offered friendship to humble fishermen and to rich tax collectors who were making a living fleecing their neighbors. I don't know about you, but I have never met anyone like this. Young adults often tell me, I'd believe in Christianity if I could see just one person living it right. I think we're all looking for heroes. The trouble is our heroes fail us. I once had a job planning Christian conferences, and in that job I had a chance to interact with some of the best-known leaders in the church. And let me tell you, it's hard to do a job like that and maintain any illusions about people. These Christian leaders were often petty and demanding and shockingly self-centered. One man I met stood out to me as the exception. I I thought to myself for years, this is what true holiness looks like. And then this year, he showed up in national news headlines at the center of yet another abuse scandal. In my experience, no one survives on a pedestal for long. There are people in the world that I admire and respect, but they're humans. They stand out from others only by minor degrees of 
practiced selflessness and humility. As I heard a leader recently point out, none of us would be very high and mighty long if anyone could read what's in all of our text messages. But here's the thing about Jesus. His followers spent basically every minute with him. They ate every meal together. They slept on the floor beside him. They saw everything he did. They heard every conversation. And they became more and more convinced over time, not less, that they were witnessing something that humanity alone could not account for. This went beyond simple degrees of human virtue. They were constantly turning to each other and asking, seriously, who is this guy? There were many revolutionaries in Jesus' day who claimed to represent God. They would call themselves Messiah. They would lead some people around for a while, and eventually they'd be killed or forced to flee after confronting Rome. Their followers would scatter and the story would be over. And Jesus' own story is on the surface no grand alternative to that common pattern. He lived, he led, Rome felt threatened. Crucifixion was designed to humiliate, to expose total powerlessness. And Jesus made no rallying cry before his execution. No one volunteered to be crucified with him because they just loved him so much. Jesus died like the people before him, abandoned by fans and followers and friends. End of familiar story. And then something happened. Whatever you think about Jesus, one way or another, the strange historical fact that everyone has to account for is this. The story of one humiliated, executed criminal among thousands of others suddenly explodes outward. People leave their families and their lives to tell others about it. They're willing to be fed to lions or used as human torches just to claim his name. Why believe in Jesus? These are at least a few reasons for me. A hero who the closest scrutiny never exposed. A humiliated, executed, small-town criminal who rocked a global empire. Thousands, then millions of martyrs who willingly died for the joy of knowing him. But for me, there's even more reason. I also believe because there is power when Jesus' name is called on. I've seen it again and again. I've seen people healed of significant, decades-long trauma after encountering him. I've met people who became Christians after Jesus introduced himself to them in dreams. I've known a marriage that was restored after a couple met with a Jesus follower who'd been told by Jesus in prayer toxic secrets that they were hiding. For me, belief in Jesus isn't the product of just one thing, but many things. His existence is historically undeniable. But more than that, he leaves behind him a trail of transformed people. Believing siblings, leaping laymen and freed captives, martyrs who are ready to die for him, empires that are turned on their heads, 
And that trail just keeps on growing wherever his story is told and his name is called upon. That's the reason I trust him. And that's the reason I follow him. Consider the evidence. But also remember that faith doesn't have to be just an exercise in intellectual theory. If Christians are right, Jesus is living and desires to be known. If you want to believe, invite him to show himself and go out looking for him. Jesus has a long, well-documented history of revealing himself to people who search for him, and sometimes even to people who don't. I invite you to pray with me. Jesus, I am only here today witnessing to you because you have revealed yourself to me in ways that have been so powerful and so persuasive that there's nothing else I could imagine doing with my life than telling other people about it. And I know that's not just my story. That's the story of thousands and millions and billions of people through human history who've given their lives, metaphorically, (laughs) vocationally, um, many, many millions of them physically giving their lives just for the joy of knowing who you are and sharing that story with others. Lord, I'm so thankful that in the course of your ministry, um, when people came to you and said, I believe Help me in my unbelief. You said that was enough faith to work with. So as much as we are able today, we say that to you. We believe. Help us in our unbelief. Show yourself to us. Give us a a hunger, a longing to keep on searching. If any blinders are in the way, if any obstacles are blocking our vision, we pray that you, by your power, would move them out. We want to know you and all the beauty of who you are and all the power of what you can do. We are looking for you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.